Yeah, so we are uniting as a single whole to learn Muslim together. Um, I'm generally opposed to the space because it's much more of a lecture-style setup, whereas opposed to the room on the side, is much more intimate and uh, informal where discussion can occur. But based on the size of the group and the nature of the classroom, we're going to kind of like shift over to a more lecture-style kind of delivery, if you don't mind. Quite frankly, if you do, I couldn't care less. <laughs> <laughs> the point that we need to explore in terms of, I think it's a very, very crucial building block in our own spiritual awareness, and it's often misunderstood. And I'm going to begin with a line from a extremely well-known sefer, specifically, specifically in the halls of the Musa Yeshivas. The Musa Yeshivas are the Yeshivas that... Um, in the from basically the 1800s until prior to the Holocaust, created a movement of which is something which is often referred to as um, personality development. But of course, any person grasping Musa on that level has completely missed the point. It's far more profound than all of that. Nevertheless, one of the works that was extremely commonly studied, specifically championed by the Altar of Kelm, who was one of the foremost proponent, proponents of the Muslim movement, the original founder being Rabbi Israel Salanta, Rabbi Israel Lipkin, who introduced the whole notion of a specific style of focus and learning. But one of his students, Rabbi Simcha Zisel Ziv, also referred to as the Altar of Kelm, was extremely um, active about promoting a book known as Tomer Dvorah, in English, the palm tree of Devorah, Deborah's palm tree. It's a book written by the famous Kabbalist, Reb Moshe Kordavira. And I'm not sure if he's a, if he was a student of the Arizal or he was a colleague. I can't remember exactly. I'll try to clarify that. But nevertheless, a man of extremely um, lofty level. And he put together a book called called Devorah. <coughs> and it takes the 13 attributes of mercy which we use on the high holy days, on the festivals, and in times when penitence is required. And it goes, I don't know if you're familiar with that, Sean. Shalom Aleichem Shai, how are you? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to distract you from your distractions. So we use this, <laughs> we use this, we use this format. Hashem, Hashem, Kelachum, Vuchanun, Erech, Apayim, Vurav, Chesed, Vemes. Anyone familiar with that? It's something which you, you probably said many times during Slichot, those of you attended, those of you who don't, don't worry, it will be coming up next year. Unless, hopefully, you won't, the Meshach will have come, but barring the fact that Meshach comes, so you will be saying Slichot. It's basically a compilation of 13 different praiseworthy attributes of complete and total compassion that Hashem deals with us um, and it transforms our image of really how the creator relates to, to us as creations and when we say these words apparently it evokes a response which locks into these meters but obviously there's much <coughs> more to it but that's not I don't want to really go into the work itself I want to focus on the introductory introduction to his piece because he says 
one of the most confusing statements that I've read and it's actually been years and years and years that I've been troubled by this and only recently actually just before I went to Australia I read a commentary on the work and it gave me clarity and so I'm so excited and I want to share this with you and it's going to form perhaps a directional um, point of what we're going to be studying together because it's really fundamental and the reason why I feel so fundamental is because you know we sitting here in, in the yeshiva and we're all like fired up or many of us are fired up fired up by the yeshiva and we've got like the spark and we've got the enthusiasm and we've got the brain the fire but the truth is look around there are very few people sitting in this room meaning the majority of the people your age are out there Jewish and they have no clue and they're not coming into this base majors they're not here and the reason why they're not here is probably, probably no one's said anything to them that's going to make them feel that what we're doing now is relevant. This doesn't speak to them. So the question is, could we give over a message that could be relevant to the masses? So I think we could, but I think we're missing the point. And I think the reason why we miss the point is we look at Judaism and our learning process as something that we study and the information given over is comes through the, either the words of the rabbis or from books that we read. And most of the process of our deepened understanding is accessed through the cognitive realm. And quite frankly, most people, this kind of study doesn't appeal to them. In fact, in fact, the notion of study in its own right is not directly related to the study of Torah. And this is where we come across a very common used expression in the words of the sages where they speak about the heart. But they don't speak about the heart as a mechanism for experiencing emotion. Of course, when I use the word heart, I don't mean to refer to that pulsating muscle located towards the left side of your chest. That's just representational. When I speak about the heart, I'm speaking about the poetic usage of the word, where the heart is a reference to the emotional side, to the, the experiential side of man. You broke my heart. I felt it in my heart. His heart is in it. Those kind of linguistic expressions which give over the impression that the heart is where the, the essence of the core of the person rests. The core. The being. The real me. The knowing heart. So if we understand heart as being emotional, so how do we really know from emotions? We were used to understanding that knowledge is really a kind of an empirical study that you open up books and you write down things and you study it. You can't know through your heart. You can feel through your heart. You can't know through your heart. That's one point. So this is how the Ramak begins his, his work. He says... The remark being an acronym for Moshe Kordavira, the author of this particular work. He says that, now listen to these words. He says, since man looks just like God, gosh, he doesn't use the word gosh, I'm putting that in. Gosh, how inappropriate would it be that man looks like God and then behaves inappropriately? If he behaves not like the way he looks, so then you'll say in his expression is if is machziv esatura, you'll deceive the image. 
you look like God and then you behave inappropriately oh gosh look at that it doesn't make any sense the, the God-like being that I see from the physical form that he takes on then behaves inappropriately how how incongruous how bad how wrong how terrible now obviously when I read those words I was a little bit astounded because the Jewish notion of ascribing physical appearances to God is looked upon as borderline heresy does not the, Ram, the Rambam state in his 13 principles of faith put into liturgical form in the Yigdal prayer he has no body and he, has no, he doesn't have the form of a body correct Menashe I would like to sing it in tune Firstly, our music is challenged. And secondly, if I want to sing in tune, I have to begin at the beginning of beginning. He has no he has no vision of a body, and he has no body. So, Alex. And comes along the great Kabbalist with Moshe Kodavir and he says, No, you look like God. You, you look like God. Not only you, him and him, him, him look like God. God look like God. God look like God. It's Apicorsus, heresy, what are you doing? And then therefore, since you look like him, you have to behave like him. Otherwise, it's going to be really, really odd looking like him. So everyone looks, Oh, look, there's God. And look at the way he's behaving. That's not God. You had a problem that I had for many, many years. Are you with me, Wallace? In your kind of very laid-back fashion. So that's that really troubled me. And then I recently got a new commentary. I always, whenever I find a commentary on the term Dvorah, I, I desperately grab it in the hope that it will address this question. And the reason why I got that, it's written by a, a contemporary um, Musa great, known as Rabbi Matisyal Solomon, and he's present in the Mashkir in Lakewood. New Jersey and he goes about explaining what does this mean and he says I'm really profound things first of all he says what does it mean that we have a body that looks like Hashem so he starts up by saying imagine if you try to describe colors to a blind person and try to describe the difference between blue and yellow (coughs) as well and as articulate as you could be there's no way that the blind person could conceive of red and and of blue and yellow in his head because he has no access to that world it's beyond him certainly he couldn't conceive of seeing things being in my line of vision there's no way he could grasp what that meant. Similarly, a deaf person, if you'd have to try to demonstrate through modeling, through miming, the notion of hearing, he couldn't grasp it. Or a person that has lost all feeling could not grasp the notion of touch. Or a person who was born paralyzed and has never moved couldn't conceive of movement. Meaning, in order for us to gain access 
to a particular idea, there has to be an experiential overlap between the concept and me. If I can see, I can grasp the concept of sight. Says the Ramchal, quoted by Matisseur Solomon, that would it be that we wouldn't have eyes? We wouldn't be able to understand the words when the verse was saying Hashem sees. Hashem sees your actions. If I wouldn't have eyes, if I wouldn't be created with a structure of a visual component to my being, so those words would be completely and utterly meaningless. Rather, look at this twist. The reason why I have eyes is in order for me to understand the concept of sight in the divine sense. However, my eyes are a tiny, modified, constricted version of a much broader and grander idea of sight. But since I can see, I can expand the process and the concept of sight to beyond my only seeing the here and now. For example, the person would have been blind his whole entire life and he saw for one day there would be enough for you to talk to him about the notion of sight. And then you'd see one day. Because he can expand from that. We can only see as far as our line of vision goes. We cannot see around corners. Neither can we see through walls. We can't see when it's dark. But since we can see under limited circumstances, when it's light, at a certain limited vision, we can understand that there could be a sight that goes through walls and that sees the whole world simultaneously. In other words, the accessibility to understanding the Creator in any way comes directly through our, the anatomical divisions of our being as itself. So our eyes actually become the parable to sight. They're a marshal. How do I describe, if I want to concretize and make tangible the notion of Hashem's ability to conceive the world as one? Well, what do I use? What, do I, what handle do I have to grasp that? Eyes. So eyes, my eyes are an analogy. The real eyes are Hashem's eyes. This is a concretized, reduced version of that powerful notion of sight. As are my ears, as are my hands as are my legs, as are every single part of my body. So what does it mean that I'm created in the image of God? That I look like God? It means that my physical form, with all its different dimensions, allows me to access the nature of the Creator through extrapolation. And through saying, just like so too. You follow? It's a radical... And different. What? You say you're basically saying God gave us physical tools to connect with Him and to understand His. In other words, were we not to have this, were we not to have eyes, not to say that we need eyes to see, we need eyes to understand how Hashem sees. So therefore, just like people have got limitations, and because of limitations which for whatever reason they have, 
they'll be deprived of accessing certain things a blind person will never be able to grasp the notion of Hashem seeing a deaf person will never be able to grasp the notion of Hashem hearing he'll be limited in his perception of what the Rebbein Shalom is so then when, when, when you say Hashem sees everything you say a blind person can't uh, comprehend that Hashem sees everything then what, can a blind person be forgiven for maybe not being the most so that's a really great question the Gemara introduces a dispute between the sages is a blind person obligated to keep mitzvahs or not so, according to the opinion that says he's exempt, you could justify the fact that he's exempt, perhaps, by suggesting that he doesn't have a sufficient comprehension of the way the world operates to be obligated in doing these things. But that's for another time, and another discussion. Denby, do you follow me? Good. So now, we've understood one aspect. We've understood that, how do we look like Hashem? The answer is, we look like Hashem because every single thing we have is a miniature condensed and reduced form of some aspect of the Creator. And therefore, through our bodies, every single thing we do allows us a knowledge of the Creator. Not only that, continues this commentary and says, that not only in terms of our physical body do we represent, as it says, we are creating the image of God, meaning, as I've just explained in the image of God that God has these in their absolute sense what we have in their reduced sense that means in the image of God everything that Hashem has we have but not only in terms of our physical form which is the apparatus that we use to interact with the world is like Hashem's apparatus that He uses to interact with the world but the static form of our body is not where it ends what we then go and do with our body and the way we act also has an overlap. So for example, take this as an analogy, Menashe, if I could distract you from a distraction. For me, with permission. Take for example the idea of a person that's never given a penny to charity in his entire, entire life. He's a classic, classic. He comes straight out from some Charles Dickens novel. He is Scrooge. There he is. And he doesn't, he's never given a penny, he's the miser par excellence. And him sitting next to a friend who gives on occasion, is aware of the notion of charity, witness another third party giving an enormous amount of money to an orphanage. Money that will reduce his assets significantly. And how do those two people react? Well, the one that gives from time to time goes, whoa, amazing that a person can be so generous. And the one that's never given a penny in his life says, I think he's insane. He's literally crazy. Why would he do that? In other words, not only physically through the form that our body takes, does that provide us access with the understanding of the apparatus that the Creator uses to interact with the world? But emotionally, through the way we feel and experience different emotional traits and components to ourselves, so do, do those things provide us with the access to grasp the Creator. And therefore, when we have a small amount of love, we can perhaps grasp what it means that Hashem loves us. Loves us. But, if we have an incredible amount of love, 
not only do we advance ourselves as human beings, but we learn more about the Creator. Because the more we love, the more we see, oh my gosh, that's what He feels. Experientially, not intellectually. And every time we make forward steps in our own refinement of self, we don't only deepen our experience of life through refining it, we become enlightened in regard to the nature of who the Creator is. And only through our development of self can we actually access that. Because otherwise, it's theories. It's like another analogy, if you like. Related, but slightly different. There's a curator of an art museum. Extremely well educated and qualified. Pick any picture, painting, sculpture in the gallery and he will give you an accurate description of the nature of the materials used, the school to which the artist belonged, the background, perhaps even models that were used in the painting of one of the pictures. He's a wealth of information. There's a curator. And there's a janitor. He walks around the gallery from day to day, dusting. And of course, from time to time he stops and he gazes at a painting or two until actually every painting becomes imprinted into his memory. And now you want to know about the paintings. Obviously, you go to the curator. There's only one problem. The curator's blind. He's never seen the paintings. He can tell you everything you'd like to know about it, but he's never seen the paintings. Some people can study Torah their whole lives, and they're simply a blind curator, telling me all the information about all that stuff. But if you want to truly know, you can only do it through your heart. And that process is far more engaging, powerful, and perhaps in some ways more difficult than simply opening up a book and putting new pieces of information into a memory bank. And that's why I really the true process of learning hasn't shifted in the slightest with the advent of the information revolution. So all the information revolution has done is it's provided us with exactly that. Information. 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 But wisdom of the heart cannot be downloaded onto any device that you possess. So that's really the first point that I think is crucial to understand. Because once you understand that, you get a better glimpse into what the Muslim movement was. Now you see that the Muslim movement wasn't just a kind of a predecessor to today's self-help. It was far more deeper. It was the capacity to transition that difficult chasm that exists between intellectual knowledge and the self. And only through treading carefully upon that tightrope can one edge himself towards truth of understanding. And without it, 
we remain people that have a veneered Torah on them. A facade that's constructed, yet the inner core remains unaffected and unabridged from whatever it was prior to the entrance into the sanctified halls of the study halls. So, that's step number one. Step number one. Step number one is that realization that knowledge comes from self-development. Not because we're better people, but when we become better people, we can now have deeper and deeper access to who Hashem is. And we can know through our bodies and through our own emotional awareness and development the greatness of the Creator. And only through that can we know who the Creator is. Otherwise, we're just going around talking about, but not connecting to. So I think that's more than enough of a bite to chew on until we reconnect with the help of the Creator tomorrow near noon.